0: What a great song to start with, Who is This? I read an article this week that, uh, that I thought was really interesting um, as, I, as I read it. I don't actually know who the author was. It just, when I read it, it sort of jumped off the page, and I thought it would be great to set our minds as we begin this morning. It's a short article, but this is what he said. Almost 2,000 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the natural laws of life. He lived in poverty and grew up in obscurity. He didn't travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived, and that was during his childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous and had neither training nor formal education. Yet in his infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled scholars. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature walking upon waves as if pavement and hushing the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, yet all the libraries in your city cannot hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having So many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, yet no leader has ever inspired more volunteers. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all of the doctors far and near. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heaven's glory. He is proclaimed as God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils. He is my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when you think about Jesus, and and you think about what we in the modern world define as what is influential or what is successful, he doesn't stack up, does he? But you cannot deny any fact that was just stated in that article. 2,000 years after he walked this earth, there is no person with a greater name than he. More than 2 billion people, 2 billion people claim to be followers of his teaching. And we call him a king, don't we? And yet he was dirt poor. He came from the the backwoods of Lower Galilee. He didn't travel the world. He had no formal education, no training, never wrote anything down, never led an army or conquered a single nation. Pretty remarkable when you look at the course of human history. Has there ever been anyone like him? He's the subject of our psalm this morning. So grab your Bibles. We're going to Psalm 45. And you're like, wait, the Psalms in Jesus? Yes. Old Testament in Jesus? Yes. Psalm 45. Did it go? There we go. Awesome. This is categorized as a royal psalm, meaning that it's dedicated to the king of Israel, and that is 100% accurate in terms of the context that it was written in back in that day. But as we go along, we're going to see it's actually more than a royal psalm. We're going to see that it is loaded top to bottom with messianic undertones that point the reader to the New Testament, to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the historic background and occasion of Psalm 45 has been hotly debated for many centuries. It obviously revolves around a wedding, but not just any wedding. This is a royal wedding between the king of Israel and his princess bride who comes from a foreign land. And because of that, many scholars have looked at this and said, well, it must be patterned after King Solomon, who, as we know, had many wives and likely many weddings, but one of which was to an Egyptian princess, and is described for us in 1 Kings chapter 3. We also have a detailed description of one of Solomon's weddings in the book we know as Song of Songs, chapter 3. It's an interesting read if you get a chance. And what you'll see as you read that particular uh, accounting of Solomon's wedding, it is full of pomp and circumstance. It is a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. Sort of like, I know some of you guys are obsessed with royal weddings in places like England, right? You'll tune in at ridiculous hours of the morning, uh, to watch the pomp and circumstance of an English monarch. Well, it was similar in ancient Israel. That type of ceremony was a big deal. It was, it was a huge deal for the nation because when a royal couple comes together, the king himself, man, everybody in the land rejoices. So that was true back then. Now, I want to just briefly... Oh, there we go. Whoa. Casey clicked it before I could click it. That's good. Uh, I want to talk about the structure of the psalm, and, and I've said this before. I'm not trying to test your eyes. I just want to give you sort of a breakdown of what this looks like from, uh, from 30,000 feet. You have this personal note from the psalmist in verse 1, and then you have this long section which is addressed to the bridegroom. And then the psalmist turns his attention to the bride in verses 10 to 15, and at the end you have a future promise. So we're going to walk our way through this. I, just, I It's sometimes helpful to see that on the screen. Now, look back at your, your text. The superscription there says, for the choir director to, according to what? The shoshanim. You're like, huh? Well, scholars say that too, huh? What does that mean? Well, they're actually unsure. Culturally, what does that mean? The word itself in Hebrew refers to a lily, the flower, a lily. So our, the best way that we can understand this is there was some melody or tune back in that day that everybody was familiar with that might have been called something like the lilies. And it was widely known at that time. So there is probably a tune that goes with this particular song. Now it's called a maskil of the sons of Korah. That's the same, so same authorship as we looked at last Sunday. And of course, a maskil is a song written to instruct with wisdom. So we're to learn from this. And what are we to learn about? It says a song of what? Of love, which seems appropriate for a wedding. So let's read together. Verse one My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Okay? There's the psalmist's note. Here we go, the groom. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of ivory palaces, strings' instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Okay, so you're, now you're getting the majesty of this ceremony, right? A big language here. Now, to the bride, verse 10. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Okay, so what I want to do this morning is examine the psalm from the two layers that are obvious here. There is a layer that talks, that is, talks about what was written in that day, according to what the psalmist understood. And then there is the second layer, which describes sort of the messianic undertones throughout. So the first layer is what the psalmist intended to write about in his day to describe what it looks like for an ancient Israelite king to get married. And we're going to try our best to stay on that, on that layer before we get to the messianic stuff. So go back up to verse 1 again. What we see there is very unusual, by the way, in the Psalms, to get a personal note from the psalmist about, this is how I feel about what I'm about to write about. This is my state of mind as I sit down to write. Very unusual language here. And he says, my heart overflows with a good or noble Theme, And, of course, he's referring to the wedding of the king. Now, why would that be so noble and so important? Well, the king is the heartbeat of Israelite society. Now, we don't have that same feeling about our presidents, do we? I'm not saying another word. But back then, this was the heartbeat of society, and especially so considering the principle of succession of the line of David to celebrate God's faithfulness with that. So a Davidic king getting married was a celebration not just of that man, but of the faithfulness of Yahweh to continue to put a Davidic king upon his throne. And so this was a source of national pride for everyone to enjoy. But notice here in verse one, how focused the psalmist is on one thing, not so much the ceremony, not so much the day, it's the king himself. That's what he says. I address my verses to the king, he writes. Now, today in the West, who's the focus of the wedding ceremony? The bride. bride. Man, she comes down that aisle, everybody stands, right? And the music comes up, and everybody honors her, and it's wonderful, it's beautiful. What does the groom do? He sneaks in from the side. I mean, right? I know, because I sneak in with him when I do weddings, right? We sneak in from the side. But in the ancient Near East, the main focus was on the groom especially when the king was involved. Notice the word overflows in this verse. The root of that verb in the Hebrew means to gush. It means to gush. So the psalmist is so enamored by the glory of this king that he is literally gushing over him, right? The words of praise flow from deep within his heart. He's eager, he's excited to share about the beauty of this king with his audience. And as you read that, you step back and go, okay, what's really going on here? Because that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? That he would gush so much. It's a little over the top. Is there something unique about this particular king? Well, let's see what else he has to say about him. Verse 2. You are fairer or more handsome than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, the natural reaction when we read this, because we're of the flesh, is to immediately focus on the physical attractiveness of the king. Right? How handsome he is. But there's something much more important being described here, isn't there? How this king has been blessed by the God of Israel, blessed forever, he says. We're like, oh, but he's so handsome. No, he's blessed by God for all eternity. That is a big, big deal. Well, why? Why is he blessed in this way? Because he carries within himself the promise of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7, where Yahweh said to David, your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever, right? And obviously we know that Christ is the fulfillment of that, right? And because this man carries David's blood in his veins, the Lord promises to pour grace upon his lips so that when he speaks, God's people will know he's not just their king, but he is their shepherd as well, because his lips are full of grace. So in my opinion, what's happening here is the psalmist is describing this sort of idealized Davidic king, the type of king that every Israelite longed for, prayed for, and hoped for. This is the Messiah, isn't it? Not only his physical appearance is perfect beyond any other man, but he possesses this inward excellence as well. And then he goes on to talk about how this king is a mighty warrior. Look at verse 3. It says, gird your sword on your thigh or at your side, right, where you carry your sword. "'O mighty one, or mighty warrior, in your splendor and majesty, "'and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. "'Let your right hand teach you awesome things or deeds. "'Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you or before you. "'Your arrows are in, or they pierce the heart of the king's enemies.'" So obviously the king is the commander-in-chief of Israel's army. He is ordained by God to secure the peace and prosperity of the land and the people that live there. But more importantly, he represents the very presence of Yahweh on the battlefield. Remember, God promises to go as a warrior himself, as the Lord of hosts. He promises to fight Israel's battles for her. So as the king rides out, he represents Yahweh. And that's why you see this over-the-top language here in describing the king. He wields his sword in splendor. That's, love. that's great, right? In splendor. He rides majestically into battle. His right hand skillfully swings that sword. He does mighty works, right? His arrows supernaturally pierce the armor of his enemies. Over-the-top language here. And that's all good and well, but like the previous verse, there's something more important buried in here. Look at the cause that this king fights for. That's the most important thing. What's the cause? Verse 4, the cause of truth and meekness or humility and righteousness. See, there were great warriors in the ancient Near East, wonderful generals who could fight battles, but it was those character attributes that set apart the king of Israel as different and unique among all of the kings of the ancient Near East. And then verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness, which is a a fancy word for justice, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy or the oil of gladness above your fellows more than any other man. God has anointed you in this way. As I just mentioned, the eternal nature of the king's throne was assured by covenant. By God's covenant with David and each king who came to power in Israel after David was reminded that he came to power not by his own you know goodness or not by his own might but because he had was given a divine right because God called him to that because of the covenant so the king's reign can't be built on his raw power or his own self-glory the king in Israel his power his authority is built on the attributes that Yahweh himself represents justice and righteousness and a hatred for wickedness. And that is what guaranteed success for the king, that he would strive and pursue the things that God loves and to put down the things that God hates. That's how God promised him success. When he faithfully lives those things out, Yahweh will anoint him with the oil of gladness. So very interesting language here. Now beginning in verse 8, then the psalmist turns to the preparations for the ceremony itself. All the king's garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you gladder, bring you joy. The king's daughters are among your noble ladies, your your bridesmaids. At your right hand stands the queen, wearing gold from Ophir. So this is more about the beauty and the majesty of the king. To get him ready for the ceremony, his attendants would drench his garment in, this, in these exotic oils and these spices from faraway lands, expensive items in that day. The sound of celebratory music comes from the opulent palace of the king that's inlaid with ivory. Again, we're, we're getting the pomp and circumstance of all this. And by the way, there's precedent for that. Solomon says he built his entire throne out of ivory. It was a very expensive exotic item in that day. But in all this, again, you get the sense of grandeur and luxury, the the pomp and circumstance of this moment. And then at the end of verse 9, you see standing to the side of this king is his soon-to-be queen, right? And you can almost picture her in her magnificent gown. I mean, if you've watched the the royal weddings from England, right, everybody wants to see what is the bride going to wear. Well, you can picture her in this gown adorned with this fine gold from a place called Ophir, which was known for its opulent wealth. She's been given the very best, the most luxurious items known in Israel. As she stands in this exalted place at the right hand of the Davidic king of Israel. It's a beautiful picture that's being drawn here, but it's very idealized. That's what you have to understand. Beginning in verse 10, the psalmist then begins to speak to the bride. And what we're going to find out, she's not an Israelite. She is a foreign princess who is marrying into the Davidic line. And that was common practice in the ancient Near East, right? There would be nations who could be at war or they could create an alliance by marrying royal family with royal family. And this happened often. So verse 10 says, Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord, bow down to him. Now, Some of that is hard for us to hear with our modern ears, right? But the psalmist's guidance and counsel to this foreign princess is, first of all, leave and cleave. According to the pattern we see in Genesis 2, leave and cleave. And I know this sounds hard, but leave your parents behind. Leave your people behind. Leave your land behind. Why? Because you are marrying into this royal Davidic line. And so now you have to be loyal to the people of Israel and to the covenant with Yahweh. And even as you hear that, you might hear whispers of the story of Ruth, right? Who leaves Moab and commits herself to Israel, to the covenant and to the people, right? She leaves Moab and she says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. That is the expectation now of the queen of Israel. So leave and cleave, put your past in the past. And then secondly, submit to this man. Bow down to him, the psalmist says, as both your husband and your king. And in that, you might hear some negative examples. Think about some other foreign princesses who married into the Davidic line and really messed things up. Think of Jezebel. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess who married King Ahab. Not only did she not bow down to her husband, not only did she not submit to him, but she actually manipulated Ahab and dictated national policy for Israel and eventually brought idolatry and Baal worship into the land. And you think about Solomon, who was negatively influenced by the idolatry of hundreds of foreign wives who were brought into the palace. And so when we mess with God's framework for marriage, the results are predictable. So the psalmist says to this princess, as you marry this king, these are the two things you've got to do. We'll come back to that later. Verse 12, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. So if you felt like, oh, well, the queen's getting a raw deal here. She's got to submit to this man. Well, here's the promised reward for leaving her past in the past, for identifying with God's people and submitting to this king. She's going to command respect now from other powerful figures in the world. Nations will send ambassadors to Israel, and they will bring her gifts. Can I get an amen? They will bring her gifts to seek her favor. She is going to be a very important person. The king's friends and subjects will now become her friends and subjects, and she will be blessed by Yahweh as her husband, the king, is blessed. So trust me, she is not without benefits here at all. And this includes her wardrobe. Can I get another amen? (laughs) And her servants. And another amen, right? In the next three verses, we sort of go behind the scenes to the bride's preparation. It says, the king's daughter, and that's a reference to this foreign princess, is all glorious in her chamber. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She'll be led to the king in embroidered work, meaning colored garments, which was a big deal in that day. The virgins, her companions, her bridesmaids who follow her will be brought to you. They will follow behind her and they'll be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. Look, they're not bummed at all. With gladness and rejoicing, they will enter into the king's palace. So again, imagine the scene, this beautiful ceremony, this beautiful, glorious bride. She's glowing from the, from the joy of the celebration. She's wearing this magnificent, multicolored gown that's interwoven with actual gold. Can you imagine? She enters the king's palace with all of her bridesmaids, and they're about to become a part of the royal court of Israel. Whew. That's what the psalmist sees. I'm going to stop there, verse 15, and let's take a step back now. And let's ask the question, considering the language, the sort of over-the-top language that you see here, do you think the psalmist is describing a purely human king? When you study the kings of Israel, have you ever found a single one who fits the description that we see in the psalm, especially those first seven verses? Not a one. Not a one. So that's why most scholars, and guess what? Even the ancient rabbis wrote about how this particular king is an idealized man. He is the promised one of Israel. He is the Messiah who in that day was still to come. Even the ancient rabbis taught that this was messianic. So in light of that, let's now go back through the story, back through the psalm, and let's look at that second layer and see if we can draw some parallels here. Starting with, why was the psalmist's heart so overflowing with praise? Why is he gushing over him? It's because of his perfections. Because he sees the Messiah's perfections. How he embodies the very attributes of God himself. That grace would pour forth from his lips. How many ancient kings were gracious in their language? (laughs) Nope. They they, They had ultimate authority and power. What they said went and they didn't care. But with this king, grace will pour forth from his lips. He is filled with splendor and majesty. Those are words that are often described of God himself, right? Splendor and majesty. And perhaps you heard the echoes of the second coming of Christ in verses 3 to 5. How he rides victoriously into battle. How he swings his sword as his enemies fall before him. As it says in the book of Revelation chapter 19, He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has written the name King of kings and Lord of lords. And in Revelation 19, what is the cause that, that Jesus will ride into battle for? It says truth and righteousness and a hatred for wickedness. That's what he will ride for. In righteousness, it says the King of kings judges and wages war. So even in that military side in Psalm 45, you, can, you sort of see a shadow of what's to come when Christ returns to the earth. The only thing in those opening verses you might, you might beef with a little bit in terms of applying to Jesus is there in verse 2 when the psalmist says that he is more handsome than all men. <laughs> Was Jesus handsome? It's an important question. We're not given a lot of information and maybe your mind goes straight to Isaiah 53, verse 2, and it probably should, where it says that he had no form or appearance that we should be attracted to him. And so meaning that he wouldn't rely on his extraordinary looks to draw people to himself. But having said that, when you look at Jesus, can you make the argument that he's not an attractive person? Is he not an attractive person? What makes a man handsome? Is it more than just his physical appearance that makes a man handsome? Why do crowds follow him? In his days on the earth? Why were children drawn to him? Why were his enemies afraid of him? I have no doubt that Jesus was a striking figure in his day. Striking. That his perfect nature and character shone through in everything that he did. And that made him very handsome. How he led and he loved those around him. How he exhibited both grace and truth in his life, in the way he dealt with other people. How his life was marked by absolute consistency. Seeking only to do the Father's will, how compassionate he was in some situations, and then when the moment required, absolutely uncompromising in the truth. And so, ladies, help me out. Is that type of a man handsome? Yeah, for sure. It's not just about physical, is it? It's about character. And so, single guys, you want a wife who finds you attractive? Here's the recipe Strive to be like Jesus, and you become more attractive. Okay, I was waiting for somebody. (laughs) I would just say it, right? So what the psalmist is saying here, he's, he's describing the truth that we sing about here all the time at Oak Hill when we sing the song, The King in All His Beauty. Do we not love that song? It's a beautiful song, The King in All His Beauty. It's being described here in Psalm 45. He has no equal among the sons of men, but it's because of his perfect character. He's perfect in deeds. And because of that, the psalmist says he's been anointed with the oil of gladness above all others. So, even in that, in Psalm 45, you see Jesus. And and as you hear that, even you're thinking about Philippians 2, right? Being exalted above all others. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, right? So, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. All kinds of interesting parallels between Psalm 45 and the New Testament. So, that's the bridegroom. Now, Let's talk about the other party involved. What is it that the Davidic king wants in this scenario? He desires a bride. He desires a bride. Not only has he prepared himself for the bride, but his bride is being prepared in Psalm 45. Does that ring a bell for us as New Testament believers, a bride being prepared? It should. The true church made up of every Christ follower across all ages and all lands and all times is the bride of Jesus. That's us. We see this all over the New Testament. I mean, I'll give you three examples. We know from this very well-known passage from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. He does the preparation of the bride, doesn't he? To present the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. How about the insight of John the Baptist from John 3? He says, "Look, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so this joy of mine has been made full. I'm not the Christ but there is one who is the groom and the groom has the bride. That's us. And then finally, just speaking from eschatological perspective, Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. That's us. We're the bride, the bride of Christ. We talk about it all the time, but maybe we haven't really thought that through much about the preparation of the bride. How are we being prepared? Well, here's the great news. This is so amazing. The groom, the groom our groom has clothed us with his righteousness. The garments that we will wear are of him. And so we are found cleansed and righteous in his sight. That is our priceless garment, that is interwoven with the gold of royalty as his bride. It's beautiful, right? We, we are the foreign bride. We are the foreign bride who is brought, chosen by the king and brought to him. That's us. And then we're made glorious in our chamber. We're made glorious in him. And then one day we're going to be led with gladness and rejoicing to the place that he has prepared for us so that where he is, we will be also. We are that bride being brought to our king. And in the meantime, as we wait for the consum- consummation of all this, how are we instructed? Well, think about this. Look at verses 10 and 11. How are we instructed as the bride of Christ? First of all, leave and cleave. Leave your old life behind. That old nature, that old man, lay it aside for the new. Leave your fleshly self-centered ways. And desire the new. Cleave to your bridegroom. Pledge your life to him and to his people. And the king will desire your beauty. Amazing parallel, right? We're to leave this world that we were born into. If we're born again and cleave to our bridegroom. And then, second to verse 11, because he's your Lord, bow down to him. Submit to your king and worship him alone. Present your bodies to him as a living and holy sacrifice. He's your king. And at some point in the future, let's hope soon, we are all going to sit down at the marriage supper with our king, and Christ will have his bride, the true church, in all of her glory. We're being prepared right now for that. It's good news. Now, we can't wrap up today without dealing with the giant elephant in the room. I read right past it, and maybe you're like, wait, you've got to stop there. The first phrase in verse 6. Look at it and gird your loins. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Should we just pray and go home? I mean, how does that not stand out, right? Well, whose throne is being talked about here? Whose throne? In the previous five verses, the language has all been directed at the king. You are fairer than the sons of men, he says. Grace is poured upon your lips. Gird your sword in your majesty with your arrows. So it's been speaking of the king this whole time, and now it says, Your throne, O God. Elohim, right? That's the Hebrew name Elohim, the supreme God. And you say, Wait, did the psalmist believe that the king that he was writing about was actually God? Well, if language means anything, how else do you explain it? Yeah, exactly. Under the inspiration of God's Spirit being carried along, that's exactly what he's saying. And this is why ancient rabbis, and this is why the earliest Christian fathers all considered this statement in particular absolutely messianic. You clearly have in this song a human being, right? He's human in appearance, he's handsome, he's a military leader, he wears actual garments, he marries a bride, and yet at the same time the psalmist refers to him as Elohim the sovereign of the universe. That is astounding. That is astounding. You should know where this is in the Bible when you talk to people about God and about Christ as deity. Now you may ask, well, how do the Jews explain this away? A couple weeks ago I mentioned that I had this wonderful resource called a Jewish study Bible. I highly suggest it. it you can, I think I got it at, at I don't know, Barnes & Noble or something. But it's called a Jewish study Bible. It comes with a rabbinical commentary in it. So if you want to know what rabbis say about verses... In the Old Testament, they don't care about the New, right? But in the Old Testament, you want to know, well, how how do they explain that? It is a great resource. So I looked it up. When you look at Psalm 45, 6, here's what the rabbis say. First, they dispute the translation, which is what they have to do to avoid the obvious implications. Their translation is, your divine throne is everlasting. So what they do is they remove Elohim, or God, and they put in the word divine. Huge problem with that. The word Elohim is in the oldest Masoretic manuscripts that we have. You can't can't just change the word, right? Oh, yeah, actually you can. You can try, but Elohim is right there. And in fact, if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that was done in the 3rd century B.C., translated by who? 72 Jewish scholars. They translated Elohim. It's exactly as you see in your Bible today. So you can't get around it. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying. So in spite of the core principle of Judaism that God is one, Psalm 45 indicates that Elohim has anointed Elohim, the king. How do you explain that? Well, it's not the only place in the Old Testament where this happens. There are other places where you have have multiple Elohims and actually you have multiple Yahwehs in the Old Testament, believe it or not. Someday we're going to get there, but if we ever get to Psalm 110, it's going to say, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is just another example. Well, who is my, this is David. Who is David's Lord in that statement? It's God. So Yahweh says to David's God, who is Yahweh, sit at my right hand. And by the way, what type of a being is able to sit at the right hand of God? A, a created thing absolutely not he would have to be divine himself only a divine being sits at the right hand of power that's just one example here's another one Isaiah 48 12 to 16 we see we see god speaking and he declares i am he the first and the last which by the way is uh, the exact phrase that is applied to jesus multiple times in the book of revelation the first and the last the alpha and the omega He says, surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. So clearly this is the creator God speaking, right? But at the end of the passage in Isaiah, the same creator says, and now the Lord God, Yahweh, has sent me and his spirit. Wait, what? The creator God says, now Yahweh has sent me and he sent the spirit. So the speaker's God who's been said by Yahweh, and by the way, there's a third person as well, Yahweh's Spirit. And listen, I could sit here all day and do this. We could talk about passage after passage in the Old Testament, and the best way I can describe it is we, we have a, we're left with a bunch of breadcrumbs in the Old Testament about the full plurality of God. No doubt, Deuteronomy 6, God is one. But these hints these and these breadcrumbs are, are left for us, right? Until the days of the... And, and I, believe, I believe in this idea of progressive revelation, that God is continuing over time to reveal himself into the New Testament period about who he is. And those breadcrumbs become a full-blown meal as we see Jesus revealed in the New Testament. But they're there all over the place. I'm gonna give you one last example, and it's maybe the most explicit. It's really important, Genesis 19 you have the story of the doom of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the previous chapter, there's a, a group of angels that are described, but there's one angel who's very unique. Multiple times he is called what? The Lord, Yahweh, this angel. So he is a physical pre-incarnate manifestation of God on the earth. And then you get to, to, to chapter 19. And, and by the way, he, appeal, he, he appears to Abraham, right? And then he goes down to Sodom And in verse 24 of Genesis 19, it says, Then the Lord, Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord, Yahweh, in heaven. Huh? (laughs) So wait, God on earth rained down fire from the God on heaven. And it's the covenant name Yahweh. Hmm. How do you explain it? And listen, you can look you can reject the historical church's answer to this which is the doctrine of the trinity you can reject that if you want but you still got to explain what this means if language means anything you still have to explain well what does this mean in the old testament how do you fit the puzzle together god is one yet we have two yahweh's right here and the church has answered this for two thousand years they have developed this doctrine which is not easy to understand don't get me wrong but it's the only explanation of the data that we have in both the Old and the New Testament. And so the onus is on the skeptic who says, I don't believe your doctrine of the Trinity to then explain what these verses mean because the language is what it is. And so just to wrap up this morning, and I'm going to do this briefly, but we have to go over to the book of Hebrews where Psalm 45 is explicitly cited. So let's do that. Go over to, go over to Hebrews 1 which, by the way, was our call to worship for this morning. Thank you, Kenny. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 9. We're just going to look at a portion of this here, and we'll do it quickly. And again, this is where the breadcrumbs become this full meal, right? Where we get to learn more about this king. The first three verses are well-known, but we tend to stop after verse 3, but let's look at it. Verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, okay, the ancient Jews, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, right? God used many ways to speak to his people. Sometimes he spoke more, sometimes he spoke less, but he spoke to all the fathers. It says, in these last days, right, meaning the New Testament era, he has spoken to us how? In his son. Look, the canon is closed. You have everything you need to know about God in his son. Right, This is how He's spoken to us. You're not getting more special revelation because we have the Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, the Son, is the radiance of His glory, Yahweh's glory, and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the power of His word. So get that. This, this Son is the agent of creation, the Creator God, he possesses the exact nature and essence of his Father, and he's so powerful, he sustains the entire universe by a word. Sounds pretty godlike to me, doesn't it? And then it goes on to talk about when Christ died, he made purification through sins, he triumphed over death and Satan, and he was enthroned as the King of heaven, sitting at the right hand of power. He is God. Hebrews 1 could not be more clear. Now, the emphasis in the rest of the chapter is how God the Father says things to God the Son that are never said to angelic beings. God says this to His Son. He never said that to angels. Okay, The first of which being, I never called the angels my son because that title means something. Now, it's true that in the Bible, sometimes angels are are called sons of God, plural. In fact, we're called as believers sons of God, plural. But never, 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 never is any angel or person ever called the singular son of God or the only begotten God or the one and only son of God. That title belongs to Jesus alone. And again, when father, fathers, fathers and sons share the same essence and attributes. My son shares the attributes and essence of me. God the Father shares the same essence and attributes with God the Son. And so that comes through in this passage. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to show how much greater Jesus is in the, than the angels in this sense. God commands the angels to worship my one and only son. Now, who does, who's deserving of worship? A created being? Absolutely not. Never. May it never be. But because he is the divine son, God commands the angels to worship him. Again, the language could not be more clear in this. But look at verse 8 now. But of the Son, Yahweh says, and here comes the quote from Psalm 45, of the Son, Yahweh says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Did you catch it? You explicitly have Yahweh calling Jesus theos in the Greek, God, period. When the first person of the Trinity spoke to the second person of the Trinity. He called him God. And look, we could continue with this. The next section, again, confirms that the Son is the creator. It talks about how he laid the foundation of the world. Someday he's going to roll it up like a scroll, like a garment. And by the way, that's referenced also in Psalm 102. We'll get there someday. So there's all these connections between the, the book of Psalms and the book of Hebrews. God the Son is Yahweh. And therefore, he's worthy to be worshiped by the angels. So you've got to see this. This is why Psalm 45 matters. When you are talking to somebody about the greatness of Jesus, book of Hebrews is a great place to go. But especially if that person you're talking to has a Jewish background, Psalm 45, take them there. Show those connections. These are the types of things. If we're going to evangelize well, if we're going to talk to people about why Jesus matters, we've got to be able to make these connections in the scriptures. Make sense? Okay, just a couple things now as we, as we wrap up. A couple things to take home. First of all, guys, see the beauty and the consistency of how the Old and the New Testaments come together as one Word of God. We have a tendency to bifurcate it, right? Ah, oh, that's the old, and this is the new. They come together. They fit like hand in glove. And making these connections is so powerful. But make sure you see that, how... Again, the Hebrew scriptures leave these breadcrumbs that we then pick up in the New Testament. It's beautiful. Second thing, reflect on this text from the perspective of the psalmist. It's worth asking the question, does your heart overflow? Does it gush over the king? You know, we, 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 in, the, we in the church that loves the word of God, we tend to sort of recoil from emotion, from feelings. But do you see this? In the psalmist, he gushes over the king. When you talk to people about Jesus, is that what comes out from your heart? Do you gush about him? Is it all just intellectual or has it gotten down to your heart? Does it just overflow? Does it just come out? Do you, do you see and rejoice in the king and all his beauty? That song matters. It's got beautiful theology to it. And then lastly, as his bride, how grateful are you that the king has chosen you as his bride? wasn't because of you. wasn't because of how great you are or how godly you are. The king has chosen you. And then he went out and as dirty garments as we all have, he said, let me give you a whole new garment. I'll clothe you with my righteousness so that when I look upon you, I see nothing but purity. Man, don't take that for granted. And we may, may we take seriously the preparation that the king is doing in our lives right now. Each and every day, each and every week when we come here, the king is preparing us. And we're looking forward to that day when we will sit down at the marriage supper with our great king. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we are, uh, we're overwhelmed when we look at a passage like this and we see these connections with the New Testament And we put these breadcrumbs together and we we make this meal out of it and we say, Wow, the king in all of his beauty, he's my king. And I am part of his bride. And he has chosen me. And he has clothed me with righteousness. And he is sanctifying me. God, may we not take that for granted. May we be struck by the beauty of our king. May we gush about him. Because apart from him, Lord, where would we be? And so, Lord, even as we sing this beautiful song in just a moment, may our hearts be drawn to you. May our hearts be drawn to all that you have done for us, all of your goodness, all of your grace. And may we praise you with lips, with lips that are true, true to our minds, true to our hearts. And may you receive our praise, Lord, as we intended to be. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.